Is there any way we can have an honest conversation? Nobody seems to want to listen. I know what I want to say, but everyone will get mad. I just don't want to get into it. How am I supposed to know if I'm right or wrong? I'm so tired of talking about this. Nobody knows what they're talking about. I feel so misunderstood. So have you ever been in a conversation with a spouse or another family member or maybe a coworker or friend or somebody else important in your life and it, it sort of begins to get intense. Uh, the emotions start to spiral up and uh, hard statements and accusations perhaps even have started to fly around and you feel almost swept off your feet emotionally in the whole uh, encounter until somebody in the group suddenly says, what do you expect of me? What are you asking, really? You know, what if I actually did it would make you happy? Can you make it clear? Can you make it concrete? So maybe there's a chance I could actually do what would make you smile. Have you ever had an aversion of some sort of that kind of conversation with someone? When we meet him in the Bible reading for today, the prophet Micah is having a conversation like that with Israel. He is um, in a very impassioned moment in the national conversation of, of Israel. And, and the setting is a, a difficult time in the history of God's people. Uh, the nation is in a time of tremendous distress. One could even argue a time of national disease. And, and, and they've suffered through a whole variety of changes in administration. At this particular point in time, the, the nation has been divided actually into two nations, uh, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah. And Judah has an alternation of good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings. Up north, in what is known as the kingdom of Israel proper, um, they have nothing but bad kings. It's just like corrupt leader after corrupt leader for a very long time. Religion in this particular period of time has gotten extremely superficial and highly selfish, self-oriented, very ritualistic, but not really changing much about the character of people. And many of the ethics and the social practices that had gotten commended by God in his uh, earlier instructions to the people of Israel have gotten either diluted or forgotten or purposely ignored, uh, such that they're no longer really governing the life of the people in the way that God had intended for that to happen. And so God decides that he needs to send help to them. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of the uh, great Bible teachers of our time, says that it was an era of unjust business dealings, robbery, mistreatment of women and children, and a government that lived in luxury off the hard work of its nation's people. And so God decides to do something. He sends a variety of prophets. And in this particular period of time, he sends people like Isaiah, you may have heard of him, Hosea, and the prophet Micah. And basically what these individuals do is challenge the people to, to rethink life. 
They challenge them in terms of their individual behaviors. They challenge them in terms of their institutional behaviors. And they want them to look at where they are acting in ways that are breaking the heart of God. And, and breaking the potential of the people. Uh, doing things that lead to the breakdown of, of the health and the hope of people in this supposed to be promised land. So repentance, which means you know, a turning around, and renewal, which means living into this new life, uh, are desperately needed all around the country. But most of the people of that time completely reject the teachings of the prophets. And, you know, he sends prophet after prophet. They just had no time for it. Uh, actually, they kill a lot of these prophets because they don't like what they have to say. And so God ultimately decides to let the boom come down and he judges his people. Uh, he, he, he stops propping up the nation with the grace that they, that he, that they don't even recognize anymore. And he, he lets other nations come in and, and destroy them. And so uh, first, the northern kingdom gets conquered by Assyria uh, in, in 586. And then in 722, the southern kingdom of Judah is obliterated. Actually, it's just the other way around. 722 for the north and 586, which is later in time for the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And Babylon just wipes them out, takes them off into slavery. And that's when we get the book of Daniel. But before that moment of final reckoning happens, um, God sends Micah to have one last ditch conversation with Israel. And he basically says, listen, there, there are things you can do that would turn this around, that, that would result in a much better outcome for everyone. And, and Micah prophesies a day when, when there is going to be final and ultimate restoration. And it's a famous prophecy. It's recorded in chapter 5 of his book. And he says there's coming a day when a new kind of king, I know you've had bad kings or erratic kings, you're going to get a great king one day. And this king, king is going to spread out a kingdom that will govern the world for good. And he puts it in these words. You might have heard these words. But you, Bethlehem, Though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come, uh, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He will stand and shop, shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. What Micah is basically saying is that the ultimate fixing of things, the ultimate reorientation of life uh, awaits the coming of a whole nother different kind of sovereign. And we know the name now of that sovereign. We know that that was a prophecy of the coming of Jesus and a prophecy of the, of the day out there still someplace where his kingdom, his final kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth and to every life. But just so that his listeners... Don't go, oh, good, somebody's going to come and fix this and we don't have to do anything. Uh, Micah goes on and, and he tries to describe in the very next chapter what it is that people can do in the meantime. So in chapter 6 of Micah's prophecy, in verses 1 and 2, Micah transports his listeners into a cosmic courtroom. And, and in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6, he rehearses... First, 
all of the ways in which God has blessed his people. It goes down a catalog of, this, of the incredible ways God has, has helped them, has lifted them, has rescued them, has resourced them in various ways time and time again. And in the context of that overwhelming goodness that God has shown towards his people, Micah advises his listeners to think really carefully and to ask themselves, what is it that this one who has done all this and who now sits on the supreme judgment bench that they're standing in front of, what can he reasonably expect from them? What could he like in, in any kind of sane frame of, of logic think that it would be okay to ask for his people to do as they live towards that day again when the Lord's kingdom reaches to the very ends of the earth? So Micah calls his listeners, and I'm going to suggest by extension to us, God's people in our time, and he asks this question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? In other words, what do I bring that will put a smile on the face of God uh, as I come to this moment of encounter with him? In other words, as I said earlier, what do you want of me, God? <laughs> what, what do you really expect? Can you be clear and concrete and tell me what it is that you're looking for? And then in verses 6 and 7, Micah offers us some options. Maybe these are the answers. Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Shall I up the ante even more? Uh, with 10,000 rivers of, of, of olive oil. In other words, do you want more religious rituals, God? Do you, do you want more sacrifice in the offering plate? Do you want more prayers of lament over how troubled my soul and the society around me is? I mean, how many times do I need to say I'm sorry for the way it's gone bad, badly in the past? I mean, is that what you're looking for, God? Or do you want my actual blood? Do you want my actual life's blood? Shall I offer, he says, my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Are you asking me to sacrifice my child for you for the sin of the world? Nobody listening to Micah phrase this sort of rhetorical question could possibly imagine that it's actually the other way around. That it is God himself is going to give his son, his precious child, for the sin of the world. So what does God want from our broken nation? So what does God ask of us? Make it clear, make it concrete, Maybe we can actually do it. And so Micah obliges in verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? I bet you know this. Many of you know this verse. Here's the answer. Here's what he asks for us, from us. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Um, well, I, I'm guessing that... that that we are all mostly now clear on um, God's desire to see us act justly. I'm guessing that from your long study of the scriptures, uh, from your reflection on Christian ethics, uh, maybe from some of the content of the last couple of weeks of our study, uh, 
that uh, you are not one of those people who thinks, gosh, I'm not sure God or Jesus really cares about justice. You know, I think that's mostly a BLM or a CRT thing. And I'm pretty sure God's not for that, uh, for, for, for the justice thing. I, I think that, that that whole justice interest is largely a distortion. It's kind of what I call the social gospel. It's, it's not really biblical. I'm hoping that from your reading of the Bible, your study of Jesus, the, the conversations we've been having here, that that's not the way any of us are looking at it. Um, I do know, however, that when we get to talking about justice, sometimes people go, whoa, 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 what about, well, what's really primary here? And so let me just go and, and dare to say that at least for me, as I study scripture, I am pretty sure that God cares preeminently about the health of human souls, which go on forever. I am pretty sure that, that if, if, if there had to be a, a, a first among equals in, in his consideration, caring for the health of human souls would be right up there with God. In fact, the word that the Bible uses for the care or the health of human souls is the word righteousness. And righteousness means being properly aligned with God and his character. Until we come into right relationship with God and his character, uh, things can't be fixed for us personally or even beyond our lives. Until we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, sin will continually block us from the truly abundant life God wants us to have here on the earth and be part of shaping here on the earth. And it will block us from having eternal life with him beyond this earth. Until, the Holy, until we open our lives up to Jesus and we ask the Holy Spirit into our life, we will lack the power to accomplish the purposes that God has for us in this world. Um, until the Spirit is moving through people, we just will not ever be able to repair the other dimensions of life in full measure. And in that sense, in that sense alone, uh, any gospel that's only social is going to fall short of, of getting the outcome that our world needs and that God intends. So I am not preaching to you a social gospel. I don't believe in it. I think there's a social dimension to the gospel, but I think that ultimately, unless God is at work in human souls and unless we are prioritizing that work as the people of God, we're not really helping the world in full measure. At the same time, at the same time, if you've studied the Old Testament law, you've listened to the words of the various prophets, you've studied the life and the teaching of Jesus, then you are also clear that God cares passionately about human societies as well as human souls. He cares about the various systems and processes and structures that make up societies as the Dutch uh, statesman Abraham Kuyper, one of my heroes, uh, once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> I, I, I want it all. In a very different sense in which Vladimir Putin might be saying that right now. 
I want it all to bless it all. I want it all to, 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 re, to help it lift, and lift up and reach its full potential. And, and, and Scripture is, is really emphatic about God's concern for this, which is why we see in the Old Testament, for example, all kinds of descriptions of what the Bible would term just practices. Just practices. And, the, and, and, there, and there's all kinds of instruction given, particularly in the Old Testament, about, about um, systems like banking, harvesting, land conversation, jurisprudence, health care, refugee management, care for widows and orphans, and a whole lot more. I wish the scripture were so specific on these things that it was like a policy paper that we could just hand to our government and say, here, do this, this will work. It does require more creativity. The Bible gives us enough principles and enough practices that, that, that are relevant to the policy issues of our time to, to make really helpful fodder in the conversation, but it doesn't fix it for us. And again, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in to help us understand how to hold these various biblical values in the right balances to advance policies and processes in wider uh, society that, that can help the flourishing of many. And, and that idea of the flourishing of many is, is the concept the Bible uses the word justice to describe. It means everything rightly related. Righteousness is, is the soul rightly related to God. Justice is everything rightly related to one another to produce the kind of flourishing that God pictures for us at the start of creation and at the end of the book. Are you with me? So, so these two ideas... So sometimes, and I'm going to confess this for myself, sometimes we slip into thinking God is really primarily interested about souls. And, and we think, you know, the, our future is this soulish life. We're going to die from this place. We're going to go to heaven. So why even worry about, you know, this other stuff, this structures and systems? Well, we're, going, we're going off to heaven, and we're going to live forever in this disembodied soul place. No. At least that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's a, there's a period of time when we're there, but then God, there's the final judgment, the final day of justice, when God marries heaven and earth. He brings them together, and there's a new earth. There's a new life and that's, that's tangible again, that's, that's real, that involves interrelationships in all of these wonderful ways. And the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, you can go read those. Those are wonderful chapters, 21 and 22, describe in metaphorical terms this new life. And, and, and it's full of all of the robustness of life on, on earth, but renewed now. And it's described like a city, like a perfectly operating city where everyone does well. And, and, and that's the future that we're living towards, which is why we care about cities now um, and, and about the structures and systems of life for everybody now. In fact, God says to his people when they're in exile, because um, they're basically saying, oh, uh, we're just going to kind of pull into ourselves and wait till we can get back where we're supposed to be in the promised land. And God says, no, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Here's a question I have for you. 
Do you think that if Christians in every city of America or living in the suburbs around those cities were known as the people who cared most for the well-being of everybody in that city and were seen to be engaging with those needs in practical ways, do you think it would increase or decrease people's interest in knowing about how Christians view spiritual matters? Yeah, it would go up, right? It would certainly grow, go, go up. It would be easier to talk about matters of the soul if Christians were seen as just bringing huge value to the matters of, of society. And I think that the early church had that kind of influence. I think if you go back and you look at the book of Acts and you watch the, the, the early Christians who see needs and move resources and get personally involved in addressing those needs, it increases their spiritual authority and credibility to the point where the Lord adds their number daily, those who are being saved, the book of Acts chapter 2 says. And, and we see this image in other places too. We know, uh, historians tell us, that even atheist historians tell us, that, that one of the explanations for why the early church grew to such incredible influence in the Roman world was that when the plagues were happening and people were abandoning the sick, Christians came in and loved them and stood by them even in their suffering and cared for them and, and, and exercised variety, varieties of ministries of mercy that just turned the head of the ancient world to the point where more and more people began to say, what is, this is what life with a capital L looks like. This is better than empire. This is a new kind of kingdom. I think it could happen again. I think we ought to work for it to happen again. Which I think is why my friend Nicholas Pierce reminded us last week, drawing from Psalm 89, that, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. When people see uh, followers of the Lord uh, with their lives uh, aligned with God's character fully, and they see those people working to align the systems and structures of the world as best we can with the character of God and his kingdom, it leads people to be more ready to have Christ is Lord. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, meaning of your influence, of your sovereignty. Now, I, I don't know about you all, but I will tell you in a confessing way that one of the challenges I face when I think about working harder for justice myself is, is the view I sometimes have of those people in our world who seem to need um, a different kind of legal, educational, employment system working better for them, or who need better resourcing, help, or repair, or legal advantage. I have, I will confess, I'm not proud of this, I have a certain view sometimes that I'm battling in myself. And that, and, and that view that I have when I'm ruthlessly honest about myself is... Some of those people deserve what they're getting. They deserve it. The man in prison 
He made those choices. The unwed mother, she made some choices. The gangbanger, the homeless person, the drug addict, the prostitute, the family, living in the tenement, the kid that drops out of school, the cop that made that mistake, the addict, you know, the alcoholic. These people put themselves there. They deserve this. I didn't have time to go after it this morning or we'd be here all day, but I've been thinking a lot about that issue of how do people wind up where they do? And I know for sure there's always a personal component, or at least I believe this, that there's always cho there are choices that are being made along the way. But I've also come to believe there's more stuff going on. So I, I'm not going to be able to get, it, get to it in this message. I'm going to send out a little uh, post this week that um, if you get a chance to open up, your, if, I hope you'll subscribe to our weekly update. You can do it through the new Christ Church Connect app um, by going to the news section of that. But um, I'm going to offer just some food for thought around that issue of how do people wind up where they are in, in life. And, and I would love to hear from you whether any of that resonates with you or you think that's just hooey, um, feel free to, to, to let me know about that. But, but let me just say that, that the other way I think about that issue of how people who are not thriving may deserve what they are, one of the other things that I think about is I think about the cross of Christ and I think about the storyline of my own life. Um, Everything in my theology tells me that but for the mercy of Jesus, I would be dead forever in my sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. I, I have such a long list of sins of omission and commission that, that I don't even have a clue how long that list is. But I am absolutely confident that in a world of perfect justice, in the sense of being held responsible for everything that you did, I'm sunk. I'm sunk, but for the mercy of Jesus who says, I'll take the rap, I'll pay the price. But for the mercy of my parents when I was growing up, you know, and, and was caught lying and stealing and cheating and, and, you know, and, and dropping the ball. I, and I did all of those things, every single one, but for the mercy of my parents who just kept being for me and giving me chances and nurturing me and showing me better ways, I'd be a different person. I would be, I know it. But for the mercy of so many mentors I've had along the way and, 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 and people that kind of opened doors for me and and wrote letters for me, and sponsored me, and, and colleagues who came alongside of me when I was, when I was discouraged, when I, I didn't know what to do, or how to get out of the mess I'd made, or, or how to do something better. If I had not but for that mercy, again, my life would be totally different than it is today. How about yours? How about yours? But for the mercy of this congregation, you know, I first, I hope you'll remember this for when some other younger person comes along and takes this job. I made so many bonehead moves. 
know, I was so full of ego. I had to put my stamp on everything, you know. It was, and, I, and I was so deluded in thinking it was, you know, I was doing all this for God. It wasn't, being, it wasn't all for God, but for the mercy of this church. I'd be pastoring some 25-member church in rural Canada. I'm sure of it. I, I, I would have deserved that. But this church gave me, gave me mercy. Think about the mercy you've known. You know, catalog it. Talk about it over lunch today. Um, God says he wants us to act justly. It's going to be hard to act towards justice if we don't have mercy. It's going to be hard because we're always going to find some reason why that person should just take care of themselves. Doesn't that feel right? I mean, that's definitely true for me. He tells us that he wants us to love mercy partly because we've received so much of it, but also because it's his character. Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. And we see this again and again in the life of Jesus. I mean, he, it's striking how much time he spends with people that desperately need mercy. You know, he hangs out when he's on earth with the people who are broken, sick, outcast, poor, failures, downtrodden. Um, he, he not only spends time with these people and seeks them out and stays with them, he builds his church on them. Even the, even the wealthy people, that, and Jesus loves wealthy people as much as he loves poor people. You know, his, he had tremendous friends of resource. You know, he, he spent time with Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea, and the church in Philippi was built on the strength of the hospitality of Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman in that city. He loves all these kinds of people, but what brought them together? Almost everybody who joined the cause of Christ came because they knew they needed mercy. They knew they needed mercy. In fact, the apostle Peter said of the early church, and I quote, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were wandering around, you were living the individualistic life, but God has brought you now into a new kind of a community. And then he defines what that community is made up of. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that Amazing community became mercy givers. That church became the church of mercy in a Roman world that barely understood or respected the concept in a world where, where the common wisdom was people should get what they deserve. The church said no. People should get what they need to rise because of the heart of God. I hope that inspires you. I, I hope that stirs you as it stirs me. What then does God require of people today? I think the Micah plan is still a pretty good picture. God wants us to act justly, love mercy, and finally walk humbly with him and one another. Humility is on the endangered list of virtues. <laughs> Uh, you know, think about that. I mean, humility is almost like, ugh, it's namby-pamby. You know, we live in the world of the bold and the brash and the angry and the assertive today. 
Humility is something we're not, we're not praying for much anymore. But it is so important to God who humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Humility, uh, you know, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, we're told in Scripture. Humility is so needed, especially in this conversation about justice because when we talk about these things, pride, certainty, anger, boom, they just explode out everywhere. And a lot of the other controversial topics of our time. I got this um, letter uh, after the first sermon that I did on, in this series from somebody. I get lots of letters. And by the way, another reason to get the Christ Church app is you can write me letters more easily. <laughs> there's a section in there that says called Let's Talk. And there's a place for you to give feedback. I love to hear from you. So this particular letter I struck me because I thought, oh, this is a good example of what it means to engage in, in honest, difficult conversation, but to do it humbly. And so this person writes to me and starts out with some very encouraging remarks and makes it clear that he doesn't hate me or think I'm a total idiot. Um, he says some nice things. And, and then he patiently explains how he feels like I'd given the impression in my first message that in describing, I was describing justice as embracing, some of you were here for it, I was em as embracing a continuum that had concerns over law and order and also concerns over resourcing and repair. But he said, Dan, I felt like the way you did that, it made it sound like conservatives lived all over here and only cared about law and order, and progressives lived all over here and only cared about resource and repair. And I thought about it. I said, even the directions that I was moving when I talked about those things suggested left and right. I went, wow, I gave that impression, and I apologized. Because I know it's a far more nuanced reality than that. I was having lunch this week um, with a friend who uh, lives in, in the inner city of Chicago and I, and, and I know is, from a political standpoint, very progressive. Uh, but I don't know too many people more outraged at looting and violence in his city than he is. He cares a lot about uh, matters of law and, and, and of order. I mean, it's the stores in, in his neighborhood. It's the livelihood and the opportunities that are being broken down when violence happens in those places. I mean, this particular person I know wants the police to act justly, would want, wants his family and his friends to be treated as fairly and consistently as I want my family and my friends treated but he would be the last person who would want to defund the police <laughs> or, or who would want to sanction lawlessness. And he's a progressive guy. Similarly, there are many conservatives who care a whole lot about resourcing and repair, profoundly about it. And what they're struggling with, some of them, is do we have the right strategy for doing that? Will this get us the outcomes we want? Help me to see how this approach will really lift people, and I'm behind it. I'm going to get behind it. And we know when it comes to resourcing and repair, it takes a bunch of different inputs at one time. You're not going to throw one program at something. It takes a lot of things. It's a system that we have to address. Kind of like the human body needs lots of inputs for it to be healthy. So if you were one of those people a little ticked off that I seem to be sort of dropping people into boxes on there, I apologize. 
That was, that was not helpful in this conversation. Are you walking humbly in your conversations about topics like justice? Do you feel like you're a good exemplar of that, of that Jesus-like humility? Um, I overstate, I oversimplify, I overbox people sometimes. I don't know whether you do, but I imagine it's easy to slip into. I would benefit from raising questions more. I would benefit from um, making my objections to other people's point of view in a little more gracious way. I would benefit from trying to get underneath what's your life experience that leads you to that conclusion. Tell me more about that so I understand it. How many times a day, by the way, do you suppose Jesus was just walking around and heard somebody say something stupid? <laughs> right? He's divinity himself. How many times a day is he listening to somebody say something that is a bad distortion of reality that just shows uh, anything ranging from dumbness to abhorrent kind of character? How many times a day? Now, how many times do you remember him just blasting people and writing people off? What does that have to take, say to us who, who, you, who, who are Christians, who are... Little Christs, which is what Christian means. Um, I wonder if the Apostle James, when he, when he wrote these words, was thinking of this virtue. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. What if he was just giving us three steps in walking humbly? What does it look like? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The last thing I want to say today, and I, I know I'm running a little over time, um, is I apologize also if in any point during the last couple of weeks or any other time in the preaching ministry here at Christ Church, you basically get this feeling that that somebody up here is saying these things to all of you because you're not doing anything right. <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I think this church, as a community of faith made up of many individuals, I think there's so much this church is doing that's in the direction that Micah and God's word are, point, are pointing us. Um, we have been a church that has understood for a long time that a biblical concept of justice is neither retribution or redistribution, it's restoration. It's seeing everybody lifted. We, we have gotten, I think that's been a, a concept that this church has gotten from its founding. For that reason, this is a church that has put a lot of emphasis on, on helping to bring souls into Communion with Christ. You know, we've loved that. We've wanted people to be in relationship with Jesus Christ because once that happens, it, 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 it flows out in wonderful ways. And we've also been a church that's, that's worked hard to help shape structures and systems and pathways of opportunity for people that can lift more people to their God-given potential in Jesus Christ because Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And he didn't mean so you can go to more prayer meetings. No, his vision of abundance was much bigger. Go back and as we look at his teaching, we see that. 
So let me just give you a couple of encouraging notes about what you're a part of. Christ Church founded an organization years ago called Love Christian Clearinghouse. That's an organization that helps people navigate the complex, confusing social service pathways of our, of our region and provides aid for them in times of crisis. That organization exists today because of the heart of the people of Christ Church. Uh, we have funded programs that, that, that support women in having children that might otherwise be aborted. We are not, this is a church that's not going to point fingers and, and, and ask people to do really hard things without any kind of support. We, we have sought to get behind people and provide the system and structure that could help them make a choice for life. The congregation has poured over the years literally millions of dollars and thousands of volunteer hours into tutoring and mentoring programs for, for, for kids and, and for uh, parents. Uh, because we just think that to, to, to really flourish, everybody needs these merciful, resourceful relationships. And this church has really gone hard in the direction of that kind of caregiving. We've been a long-term investor in the work of prison fellowship. In fact, we were one of the very first people to invest in prison fellowship because we think God cares for the, the criminal justice system and God cares for the people in our prisons and he's not done with them yet. And, and so we've invested in that. We've had the head of that organization um, speak here, Chuck Colson, when he was alive. And today, today, the chairman of the board of that organization is a former member of Christ Church who lives in Florida, Carl Dill. Some of you know him. Uh, the people of this church were amongst the very first investors in the Lawndale Community Church in the near west side of Chicago. And, and, and we're still partnering with Lawndale. That church has not only brought thousands of people into communion with Christ uh, to become disciples. They have started a health center that's serving a, nearly 100,000 people a year with health care. They, 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 they run a support network for ex-offenders and for addict, recovering addicts. They have enabled hundreds of people to buy their very first home and get on the equity uh, escalator that, that, again, so many of us have, have taken for granted that we had parents and, uh, that, that did this for us or that helped us with this or that we inherited from for so many in the inner city doesn't that doesn't exist and lawndale's come in the christian community and helped with that a few years ago you may remember we founded an organization called resilient with a vision of trying to support uh, god's work in the roosevelt road corridor here in dupage county where there's a lot of um of struggling folks and that ministry over the years has, has, has grown up and it's got legs now and it's offering uh, mentoring programs of various kinds. One of the most exciting ones is called Upstart. Upstart was uh, pioneered by a couple of business people in this church who reasoned that there are a bunch of kids out there who, who just going off to a liberal arts college, not going to be the right move for them. But if they could see a pathway to getting a job in the trades where there's a huge need for, for skilled craftspeople, uh, that they could have a well-paying job that would support them and their families. And so they built the structures, the systems, to move kids through life skills training and apprenticeships into that future reality. Isn't that great? Those were Christchurch people that did that. Together we provide funding and volunteers to Reclaim 13, uh, a ministry that helps young women who have been victims of sex trafficking 
and houses them and counsels them and supports them. I know a woman in this church, one in particular. If you walked her, watched her going by, you'd have no idea that her heart was bound up with the lives of these struggling young women. And the hour she's invested in trying to see better structures built for them for, for thriving. We're involved with Breakthrough Urban Ministry in the city, with Inner City Impact, with By the Hand Kids Club. And I can see faces right around this room today who I know are key volunteers in those incredible works in our city. Uh, we are uh, exploring now, establishing at our Butterfield campus, a branch of an organization called Administer Justice that helps people navigate the legal system of our time and brings resource and relationship around them for good. We're beginning to think about the possibility of, of creating a comprehensive care center someday in which we advance both righteousness and justice together for people. Does this make you smile? I think it makes God smile. I think it's the kind of thing churches are supposed to do. And if you want to know more about any of this or how to be part of any of this, write to us at serve at Christchurch.us and we'll help you make a connection uh, to be involved in this good work. Why do we do all of this? Because when we act justly, when we love mercy, when we walk humbly, we become more like Jesus. We advance the purposes of Jesus and we prepare the way for that coming day beyond any of our capacities when Jesus makes all things new. Would you pray with me? Lord, we remember the words of the prophet Amos that there was coming a day when justice would roll like a mighty stream, when your righteousness would fill hearts and lives in ways that unleashed incredible potential for this world. So do it, Lord. We open ourselves to it. We ask you to, to flow through us this day and in these days to come in a way that brings glory to your name and blessing to other people in this world that you have so loved that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>